Hello and welcome to the 1922nd edition of the, sorry I beg your pardon, the 1929th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 18th of May 2023. The editor of this edition is myself, Graham Parley, the producer is Roger Morris and your readers are Christian Jenner and myself, Graham Parley. I'd also like to mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will commence with the headlines. A correction there. Uh, we do have a note to uh, read out regarding Suffolk Site newsletter. In their newsletter for spring and summer, the charity Suffolk Site has listed various social clubs in the area which are open to people with sight loss. If you are registered with Suffolk Site and have your own transport, you can access as many social clubs as you wish. The social clubs meet for two hours once a month. In this area, the social clubs and the times they meet are as follows. Bury VIP's Old School Cafe, St John Street, Bury St Edmunds, IP331SJ, on the fourth Tuesday of the month, between 11 in the morning and 1 p.m. Haverhill BAPS, Haverhill Bowls and Cricket Club, Manor Road, Haverhill, CB90EP, on the last Wednesday of the month, between 2.30 and 4.30 p.m. In Pakenham, it's at the Village Hall in the street, Pakenham, IP31 2JU, on the second Thursday of the month, between 2 and 4 p.m. In Sudbury, it's at the Weaver's Tap, Queensbury House, Sudbury, CO102HX, on the first Wednesday of the month, between 11 in the morning and 1 p.m. And we'll start with the headlines now. Public to have say on plan for town's future. Call for bank hubs in Suffolk to prevent financial exclusion. Petition launched calling for an all-weather lifeboat to be kept at Suffolk Station. Future of Suffolk libraries unclear amid £720,000 deficit. A date has been set for the public to have the say on a Suffolk Town's neighbourhood plan. A referendum will be held on Thursday, June the 29th, for the Saxmundham Neighbourhood Plan, which will guide future development in the parish. At the poll, residents will be asked the question, do you want East Suffolk Council to use the Neighbourhood Plan for Saxmundham Parish to help it decide planning applications in the neighbourhood area? If the plan gets more than 50% support in the referendum, then the council will adopt the neighbourhood plan as part of a development plan for the area. In April, the East Anglia Daily Times reported how the neighbourhood plan had moved a step closer to approval after a public examiner recommended that it had met its legal requirements. However, all references in the Saxmundham neighbourhood plan to a proposed new 800-home garden neighbourhood straddling the town's border with neighbouring Benhall Parish have been removed on the advice of examiner John Slater. Concerns had been raised that the garden neighbourhood had initially been included in the neighbourhood plan as parts of the development lay in Benhall Parish and therefore outside the Saxmundham town boundary. The examiner had been brought in to review the plan to ensure that it had met all its legal obligations. As well as guiding development approval of the neighbourhood plan could also result in the amount of money Saxmundham received from Community Infrastructure Levy, the CIL, funding increased from 15% to 25%. The CIL is a charge that local authorities can levy on de developers to pay for infrastructure. Referring to the garden neighbourhood, a spokesperson for Saxmundham Town Council said, but if this large development goes ahead, we need to help influence it in the interest of the whole town. And if the neighbourhood plan is voted for, 
the town would get a much larger amount of CIL money to spend on the whole town priorities for our community. A Suffolk Citizens Advice Chief has called for banks to create shared hubs in Suffolk's towns amid fears older generations are being financially excluded by bank closures. Research by the charity Age UK has revealed that older people rely on in-person banking, with only 4 in 10 managing their financial affairs online. Suffolk has seen a spate of bank closures in recent years, with Barclays announcing in March that it intended to shut its branches in Mildenhall and Newmarket in June. The decision means that Mildenhall, a town of more than 10,000 people, will not have a bank for customers to visit, as the Lloyds branch there closed in 2021. In addition, another banking giant, HSBC, will be closing its Sudbury and Beckles branches over this spring and summer. Simon Clifton, Chief Officer at Citizens Advice Mid-Suffolk, said his bureau had held a forum which showed that people were struggling to access services generally and that banking would be included in this. He added there was now an over-reliance on digital, while the bank closures were placing increased pressure on post office branches, to which customers were being redirected to withdraw their money. He said, we are always putting in actions to make sure we are more accessible to people when we are needed on a face-to-face basis. That is what we are trying to do, but at the same time, we have got banks that are withdrawing from market towns. Mr Clifton said if banks committed to providing a presence in market towns on one day a week, that would be better than nothing. At least for one day a week, somebody can go and see their bank, so I am fully in favour of more banking hubs being developed and set up, he said. Age UK director Caroline Abrahams warned the oldest generation could be effectively disenfranchised by the loss of banks and called for hubs to be set up as quickly as possible. She added, These findings therefore demonstrate the huge and continuing demand for face-to-face banking services among our older population and it's crucial that the banks respond. A petition has been launched to maintain an all-weather lifeboat at a Suffolk coastal station amid fears a charity is about to downgrade the provision. Signatures have been sought on petitions website change.org calling for the Oldborough lifeboat to be saved after the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, RNLI, revealed that it had been liaising with volunteers and staff at an Oldborough about the correct lifeboat configuration for the station as part of a review process. However, Suffolk Coastal MP Theresa Coffey said she feared a potential downgrading of the station's lifeboat capacity as the current all-weather Mersey-class lifeboat, Freddie Cooper, has reached the end of its operational life. So far, 820 people have signed the petition on the change.org website, which is aiming to get 1,000 signatures. On the petition page, organiser Malk Might said a new Shannon-class lifeboat was set to be provided to replace Freddie Cooper, funded through legacies left in wills by local people. He reflected that the RNLI itself had revealed in 2016 that a Shannon-class vessel was going to be allocated to the station, but now appeared to have backtracked on this commitment. He also expressed disappointment that the RNLI chief, Executive Mark Dowie, had not met Ms Coffey to discuss the situation. While there was a restricted fund of £2.4 million for a Shannon-class vessel, which costs £2.5 million, he said, We call on you to meet with the members of the community and wider public, along with our MP, in a public and transparent meeting without delay, answering questions, including explaining where the money has gone. He said the charity should listen to those who had the hands-on experience, 
knowledge and expertise of the rivers and seas. An RNLI spokesperson said, The Mersey-class all-weather lifeboat at Oldborough will soon reach the end of its operational service so the RNLI has started a joint life-saving effect review with our volunteers, staff and wider lifeboat station community at Oldborough. The insight and contribution from the lifeboat station is imperative in helping the RNLI work with the station to reach a decision on the correct lifeboat configuration for this stretch of water. We are very grateful for their engagement and cooperation with the review. As sea use around the coast changes, we must ensure that we have the most appropriate lifeboats in place which will save the greatest number of lives in the most effective way. The RNLI is funded by the generosity of the public and has been for almost 200 years. We have a responsibility to provide the right life-saving service for residents, visitors and those who use the water, while ensuring donations to our charity are spent as wisely and appropriately as possible. The all-weather lifeboat remains operational during this time with no impact on service. The review is ongoing with a decision expected in the summer of 2023. She said the 2016 decision on the Shannon lifeboat had not been implemented because operational needs had changed since then. With regard to the legacies, she said they had not been left specifically for Oldborough Lifeboat Station, but to the charity itself, and all funds would be used to provide the most effective life-saving service around the coast of the UK and Ireland. Staff cuts, a reduction in opening hours and the future of the mobile library service will be considered by councillors as they wrestle with how to manage a shortfall of more than £700,000 a year in the running costs of Suffolk's libraries. In November last year, Suffolk Library Service identified a potential deficit in its budget of £60,000 a month or £720,000 a year. Councillors from Suffolk County Council are deciding on how to reduce the costs of maintaining the service without taking the libraries away from the residents. The deficit has been contributed to by a post-Covid shift in the way people and organisations use the buildings and services, as well as an increase in staff pay and increased running costs. To increase income, some libraries across Suffolk may share the space with community services, including high street banks. Even though commercial partnerships are also on the table, these opportunities are not large enough to manage the cost pressures. The Council made a commitment to continue to support the library service and is looking for possibilities to co-locate libraries with children's centres, leisure providers and cafes where appropriate. There are two options that will be taken into consideration, including reducing the offer and focusing on delivering the service within the current £5.9 million per annum budget, which would require changes, including a reduction in opening hours and a reconsideration of the mobile library offer, cuts in staff, or maintaining library service at its current level and creating a cost pressure for the County Council. Bruce Leaf, excuse me, Bruce Leek, CEO of Suffolk Libraries, said that the organisation has a very positive and supportive relationship with the council and is grateful for the proposed additional funding. He added, Our direct library costs have significantly increased over the last few years and the pandemic impacted our ongoing fundraising and income generation for room hire, etc., we have already made significant cost savings and efficiencies over the past 10 years and have increased our efforts to raise money to sustain and improve the library service, including this year's Positivity Art Sculpture event. Councillor Bobby Bennett, Cabinet Minister for Equality and Communities, said, We recognise the important role that libraries play in the community. They offer so much more than just books providing community spaces which bring people together to learn, socialise, read and take part in activities. 
we have worked closely with Suffolk Libraries to understand the financial challenges they are facing. We are proud of the work Suffolk Libraries do, which is recognised nationally, and we are committed to supporting the service to maintain this high standard. And now we're going to move on to some general articles. A supermarket chain Morrison's is still awaiting the outcome of its appeal over a refusal of its planning application to build a Costa Coffee drive through in its car park in Beckles. Morrison's and Beckles had their application refused by the Broads Authority on a number of grounds in April 2022. If approved, it would have been the second Costa Coffee in the town with a branch inside the nearby Tesco supermarket on George Westwood Way. The supermarket chain said the proposed Costa drive through would be constructed to a high standard and would include a cafe seating area and an outdoor seating area. Morrison's chose to develop the coffee shop on an underutilised area of the Beckel site car park. Parking surveys Morrison's carried out revealed that during peak operation hours, the car park was at 43% occupancy. The new premises would lie in the northwest section of the car park, attracting traffic from both the A145 George Westwood Way and the A146 roads, with entry to the premises to the south of the site. Beckles Town Council rejected the initial planning application, stating concerns about traffic congestion and the negative impact on the site have on the environment. The Broads Authority had provided a number of reasons why the application was refused, including the proposed site being a flood risk zone. It said since the site is a former landfill site, there is reason to believe that the development could be at risk from contamination. Finally, the refusal concluded that since the development site is within the Broads territory, it has the highest protection in order to protect and preserve the landscape. It's, in its appeal, Morrison says the site is a fringe area of Beckles and includes an element of an industrial landscape. Morrison's also argued the trees around the perimeter of the outline development site were not protected by a tree preservation order. It also restated its intentions to plant 17 trees. Life in service, the blitz, and drinking lots of hot cups of tea. There is not much in her life that a 108-year-old Violet Honeybun has not achieved. Hadley Nursing Home resident Violet, who is known as Bunny, turned 108 on May the 13th. And for her birthday, children from the St Mary Primary School in Hadley have made it her most memorable yet by singing to her. The children sang Happy Birthday, as well as a song from their Cinderella Christmas play. They also spent time sitting with the residents and talking to Bunny, who shared experiences from her life with them. Tracy Alexander at Hadley Nursing Home said it was absolutely brilliant. She was so touched by it, she just couldn't believe that they all took their time to make her cards and sing to her. She turned to us and said, If I don't have another birthday, this will be memorable for the rest of my life. The children learned a lot from Bunny. Being born in 1915, she was able to share a lot and the kids really enjoyed it. Bunny was the daughter of a Thames lighterman and one of eight children. She married Henry Honeybun in 1938, who joined the Grenadier Guards and had become batman to Lord Lassells, the late Queen's cousin. The couple were married for four decades, with Mr Honeybun passing away on their 40th wedding anniversary. Staff at the home are preparing a fitting party for Bunny, and the five generations of her family have appealed to local people to send her birthday cards. This year will be her first birthday card from King Charles III, after a number of cards from the late Queen Elizabeth II. Despite being 108, Bunny is still very much aware and enjoys reading, playing Scrabble and doing crosswords, maintaining that expanding her mind has helped her to stay younger and live longer. When asked what was the secret behind her long life, Bunny said, 
drinking lots of nice hot cups of tea. Walls could talk. What would they say? For the past three years, the walls of 11 High Baxter Street in Bury St Edmunds would probably talk of the extensive renovation throughout the building. But, given the town centre house has been standing since around 1590 or 1600, those same walls could probably tell some fascinating tales. Bury St Edmunds Town Trust bought the derelict timber frame Tudor property for 305000 in 2019 and spent several months working with a conservation officer and architect shaping the project before starting work just as Covid came along. The former HMO had stood empty for three years before the trust got involved but it, its slow decay started decades earlier. Jonathan Lloyd, chair of the trust, said it was awful there were actual holes in the ceilings in places. Now works are nearing completion, but the Trust said the project was not without its difficulties, particularly due to the pandemic, material shortages and soaring inflation. But throughout the home, features which had spent years decaying have been carefully brought back to life. A badly damaged fireplace on the ground floor is one example with sufficient stone found to restore it. We are fairly sure it's Abbey stone, but they can't have it back, said Paul Reisard, Vice Chair of the Trust and Project Manager. Meanwhile, a Victorian extension with a 1970s conservatory has been demolished and replaced with a new steel-clad structure complete with solar panels and a modern kitchen diner and adjoining utility room inside. Exposed original Tudor brickwork is one of the period quirks in the extension alongside a glass window looking on to the half landing where the property's original rear entrance would have been. The half landing itself features an exposed area of lime plaster revealing wattle and daub behind. Upstairs there are original beams including one inside the modern shower cubicle in one of the home's two new bathrooms, four bedrooms and quirky little cupboards throughout. And despite its age, efforts have been made to ensure the property is as sustainable as possible, with windows restored and draft-proofed, natural insulation introduced and air source heat pump installed. Paul added, I'm so pleased we have brought it back to life. This is going to have a long-term future now, where it didn't have a future before. The house will now be put up for sale or to let. The occupant of a house hit by lightning has described the moment of impact as sounding like a missile. The lightning struck the terraced property in Atterton Road, Haverhill, just before 11am last Friday. Occupant Matthew Cherian, who shares the rented house with two other people, said the impact damaged the TV antenna on the roof, which was also damaged, and caused an electrical socket behind the TV to blow out, scattering debris across the living room. The lightning also hit the broadband modem on the house's outside wall, ruining it and the router inside. Mr Cherian said he was making a coffee in the kitchen when the lightning struck, adding... It was like a missile coming. There was a huge sound, a huge sound. Four fire appliances attended and firefighters disconnected the electrics and made the property safe, including removing damaged roof insulation before leaving at about 11.45am. A blue plaque has been unveiled in Rickinghall in memory of the archaeologist who discovered the great ship burial at Sutton Hoo and who lived in the village for more than 40 years. The plaque for Basil Brown at Cam Cambria in the street came 84 years to the day when he arrived at the site to begin excavating and go on to discover one of the most important archaeological finds in Britain. Quatrefoil, a group who formed in 2012 and published books on the history of Rickinghall and Botsdale and Redgrave, organised the accolade. 
Chairperson Sarah Doig said, We are absolutely delighted that we now have such a visible recognition of our most famous resident. Basil is fondly remembered by all who knew him, and we are all proud of his many archaeological achievements. Exploring the facts and myths about your houseplants. Prolific indoor plant collector Tony LeBritton has learned that not all advice on maintaining plants rings true. As well as sharing advice with his expansive plant-loving community, he has researched scientific reports and documents on the subject. Here are some of the house plant experts' finding. Myth. Tap water is bad for plants. Tap water is absolutely fine for house plants. The only exception to that is carnivorous plants, which require rainwater or water from a river or pond, something like that, he says, adding that the levels of chlorine in tap water are way below any level which would affect your house plants. In fact, one key element that plants need to grow is chlorine. It is found in the wild and plants use it to grow healthily. Some people boil water or they'll leave it out overnight, all that does is concentrate the minerals that are in there because water is evaporating. If you've got rainwater, brilliant, but I grow all my plants, even the very rare ones, using tap water. Myth. You have to mist. If you enjoy doing it and find it relaxing, then go for it. Just know that if you are trying to increase humidity, it's not doing that. And it can cause things like fungal problems on the leaf if the water is not drying off, says LeBritton. The plants we have available to us do not need any extra humidity other than a regular home environment. Leaves are literally designed to keep things out and keep water in. Myth. Homemade fertiliser is always best. This is a bugbear for Britain, who says homemade fertilisers are a total waste of food or a total waste of time. Sometimes it can actually create a negative impact on the plant. Key types are the banana skin used as houseplant fertiliser, he says. Bananas have loads of potassium, and people think that means their plants are going to get loads of potassium. This is so wrong. Even if the skin did have lots of potassium, which it doesn't, that's not what plants need. If plants are going to grow healthily, they need a balanced fertiliser, and different plants rely different require different levels of NPK nitrogen phosphorus and potassium he says if you give your house plant too much of one nutrient it can cause nutrient lock stopping the plant absorbing other nutrients warns Libritin for house plants get a synthetic natural blend fertilizer as they are not able to access natural fertilizers very well he suggests what about fertilisers grown from home-grown comfrey? Comfrey fertiliser is brilliant. Seaweed fertiliser is brilliant when used outside because in the soil you have bacteria that can break those nutrients down and make them accessible to the plants. The plants can't absorb those nutrients that you're giving them from comfrey on their own. It's the relationship with the soil bacteria that allows them to absorb them. He says, if you put comfrey fertiliser in your houseplant soil, it can cause a build-up of anaerobic bacteria, root rot and fungus gnats. Villagers have thanked a broadband company after it decided to move one of its boxes to a more appropriate location. People living in Capel St Mary expressed a frustration after the six-foot-tall GigaClear box was installed on a plot of land in the street last month. The green box was placed in front of where a new £100,000 children's play park was being constructed, with the site now open. Safety fears had been raised that its presence would block the view of drivers leaving the car park. But GigaClear has now agreed to move the box to the playing field adjacent to the pavilion building. Residents have previously complained that the presence of the box would spoil the view of the new park when it was completed. GigaClear made it very, said it made every effort to engage with the village community before the work started, saying it had been in contact with district and county councillors 
over its plans to start work in the village. Sarah Smy, who lives in Capel St Mary with her family, said she was upset to discover the box had been installed at the centre of the village. However, she thanked GigaClear for its communication with the community and said the new location for the box will be much more discreet. Mrs Smy said the new playground has now officially opened. Fair play to GigaClear for this. The box will now be somewhere much more suitable. It's going to be in a much more discreet location. It's now a green box against a grey wall, which is much better. It's just, it is just more appropriate. Capel St Mary Parish Council Chair Chris Matthews also said she was pleased that the discussions over the reciting of the Cabinet had come to an agreeable conclusion. She said, We're grateful to GigaClear for listening to the village concerns and taking action. A 400-year-old portrait of one of the most famous sons of Haverhill, a man whose brother wrote what became the basis for the American Constitution, has been restored and now hangs in one of the town's churches. The portrait of Samuel Ward, which is a copy of the original 1620 painting, is now back in place at St Mary's Church after its restoration. The Friends of St Mary's, FOSM, arranged for the painting to be restored, ensuring that it will survive for future generations to enjoy. Richard Hart, FOSM Chair, said, Dating from 1622, it was in need of serious attention. The image was so dark, the features were obscured. Now Samuel's face is bright, and the religious book he is holding is as clear, as is a beacon and watch ward, a term used to refer to him while he was a preacher in Ipswich in the background. On the back of the portrait there is some text explaining more about it. It reads, Samuel Ward, born in 1575 or 76, oldest son of John Ward, whose memorial tablet is in St Mary's Church, Haverhill. He became a Puritan lecturer at Haverhill and then for many years at Ipswich. He published theological tracts and sermons. The original portrait is held by the Colchester and Ipswich Museum Services. This portrait is believed to be a copy ordered by his family and has been presented to Haverhill Church by Charles Partridge of Stowmarket, Suffolk, who bought it from a collection of the late F.A. Crisp of Little Wenham. It has the watch ward and the flaming beacon, as is on John Ward's monument in Haverhill Church. Samuel died in March 1639, aged 62, and was buried in St Mary Le Tower Church in Ipswich. His brother Nathaniel, also born in Haverhill, revised the laws of Massachusetts, having moved there in the 1630s. In 1638 he wrote The Body of Liberties, which became the basis for the American Constitution. While undertaking the restoration work, a second painting, a coat of arms painted on the vellum, was found behind the portrait. It has also been cleaned and now sits on the wall underneath the portrait. Research is being done to identify the coat of arms. A co-op store in a Suffolk town is set to undergo a major makeover later this year. The co-op in Market Hill Clare will have a new look and feel. Once the work is completed... Although plans are still to be finalised, the refurbishment is due to commence in September. Plans for the transformation include self-service tools, an extended range and choice, and increased refrigeration to serve the community. There will also be a new frontage erected at the front of the store. A spokesperson for the co-op said, We are committed to serving the community and it is exciting to have the opportunity to invest in transforming and improving the store. We are confident it will have a great new look and feel. We are working to develop the range, choice and services to create a truly compelling offer to serve and support our local community conveniently. Proposal for a 103-acre solar farm takes a step forward. A formal request for an environmental impact assessment screening opinion has been submitted to West Suffolk Council in relation to a proposed solar farm near Haverhill.
the application by Enzygo Limited on behalf of Bluefield Renewable De Developments Limited asks the Council to decide whether an environmental impact assessment is required for the 42 hectare site spread across three parcels of arable land at Waterfall Farm in Wixo. Enzygo has stated that the proposed development is expected to generate in the region of 35 megawatts of re renewable energy and will generate sufficient electricity annually to provide for the needs of approximately 8,100 households per year and will save in the region of 5,500 tonnes of CO2 per annum, which is the equivalent to taking 3,500 cars off the road. A survey has also established that only 30% of the land that would be lost offered the best and most versatile soils. The solar panels would be about 3 metres above ground and a substation would also be built. Holiday lodges at a Farnham St Genevieve Hotel, Golf and Spa complex could have raised timber decks offering golf course views if plans win approval. All Saints Hotel has applied to West Suffolk Council for permission to install raised timber decking and balustrades to new holiday lodges at the site. Planning permission for the 15 holiday lodges was granted in November. And now we're moving on to some letters. And this one comes from Roger Sykes in Earl Soham. I much enjoyed reading Mark Murphy's Give Our Hedgehogs a Helping Hand in the opinion page. Hedgehogs need all the help we can give them and it's good to know Mark and many others, including myself, do what we can to protect their dwindling numbers. What puzzles me rather is that Mark reports that he now gets several regular spiky friends into his garden to the point where extra feeders are required. I live in a small village and our house and garden is adjacent to pasture. My garden is largely devoted to being flora and fauna friendly but I am fortunate to have just one hedgehog that seems to prefer mainly avoiding me but its dish of food gets consumed every night. I see it occasionally after 10pm. Mark must have the knack that I lack of attracting these little folk, which makes me quite envious. Uh, my letter is from John Wilkin, Bury St Edmunds. Were these candidates in the party or not? In the recent West Suffolk Council elections, I noticed that several former Conservative Party candidates described themselves as local Conservatives. Is this a new party? If not, are they still members of the Conservative Party seeking to distance themselves from some of the less popular aspects of the National Party? If so, they have done themselves no credit by seeking to deceive the public. You can't be half in or half out of a party, and if you disagree with its policies, you should leave it. This letter is from Graham Day in Stowmarket. I have read with interest Tony Garnett's letter about the origin of the Tractor Boys nickname for Ipswich Town and also Clifford Davies' take on the same issue. The only time I can recall the Tractor Boys nickname being used in a supporters chant was on August the 21st, 2001. The game was versus Derby County. At that time, Town introduced to their latest recruit, former Nigerian international winger Finidi George. Finidi memorably scored two excellent goals on a 3-1 win for Town. The supporters' chant was based on the Tractor Boy theme. His name's Finidi, he comes from Africa and he drives a very big tractor. By all accounts, Finidi enjoyed it. Unfortunately, no, his feat was never really repeated and he left the club. Later on, he admitted that sadly he had not been fully fit. Um, my letter is from Tony Martin Woolpit. An unnecessary disturbance. Thank goodness the police have got new powers to stop social disruption. I've been told that in London last Saturday there were people blocking the streets, dressed in outlandish costumes with no consideration for people wanting to carry on with their normal activities. This meant that children missed school, people were not able to attend hospital appointments and were forced to look for alternative routes to avoid the congestion. 
This can't be allowed to continue. The sooner our wonderful Metropolitan Police Force put a stop to these unnecessary disturbances, the better. This next letter is from Jim Mitchell in Carlton Colville and is headed Constituents Concerns. I would like to pay tribute to the long-suffering constituents of the controversial South West Norfolk MP, Mary Elizabeth Truss, who, after a great deal of frustration, went public with their complaints about being totally ignored by their elected Westminster representative. The principal source of these constituents' anger is that the former record-breaking 41 days in 10 Downing Street, Prime Minister, has not and does not reply to letters sent to her regarding urgent constituency matters of some immediate concern. Hence the charge certain folks are making, that Liz Truss MP is completely out of touch with ordinary people. And uh, my next letter is from Graham Day, Stowmarket. And this is quite a long one, this one. Council has reaped what it sowed. Just before the dawn of the new age in local government in April 1974, there was some concern amongst a smaller rural district as to whether county-wide unitary councils would be set up. Memorably, the Hartersmere Rural District Council, located in I, had a special stamp on each letter sent out. It featured a bowler-hatted council officer with a briefcase and underneath the caption, Don't vote for R.E. Moat. Those concerns were not realised, but nevertheless, larger district councils were created, such as Mid-Suffolk and Baybert. I worked for Gipping Rural District Council and later was proud to work for Baybert between 1974 and 1979. Some years ago, Mid-Suffolk carried out a public consultation for a merger with Baybert Council. The result was a resounding rejection by editor electors. However, the councils agreed an arrangement to con- combine staffing for some functions, and this ultimately led to the closure of two purpose-built comp- office complexes and the districts sharing accommodation in Endeavour House in Ipswich. A merger in all but name, which has led to the councils becoming more remote from the population they serve. This is particularly so in the former Hartersmere area. It is no surprise to me that the Green Party has hit the national headlines by winning control of Mid-Suffolk. Its first council in the UK, the former councillors have made themselves inaccessible to the public. Perhaps now we will have some sensible policies, such as a drastic reduction in the new permissions for residential developments, which are gobbling up and blighting the countryside, destroying the character of towns and villages. It is no surprise to me that the former office sites are being used for housing. Our view in Bayburg was that the new offices opened in the early 1980s would always ensure that there would be a substantial public sector presence. How wrong we were. I hope that the new administration in Mid-Suffolk does acquit itself well. The councillors who set the two authorities on the path of making themselves remote can have no complaints. They have reaped what they have sowed. This is from Sarah Thompson in Woodbridge. It is becoming daily more apparent what 48% of us already knew, that Brexit was and continues to be a catastrophic mistake. The entire premise that politicians forced down the throats of the electorate was based on lies. We now know that Mr Johnson's response to the referendum result was, we've got no plan, what will we do? And yet, the government continues to be in denial, regardless of the huge cost it continues to inflict on the population. Those suffering the most from this disaster are our businesses, young people, children and grandchildren who are and continue to be prevented from easy access to the myriad businesses and cultural opportunities available in the European Union. Is this the legacy the government wants to leave? Think about what history will say about the self-inflicted wounds that have been visited on us as individuals and as a nation. 
We must rejoin the European Union if we are to have any credibility on the world stage or function as a viable entity. And this letter is headed, Recalling Another Long Distant Coronation. When I saw the magnificence in Westminster Abbey for the coronation of King Charles III, I wondered what it looked like for the crowning of William the Conqueror on Christmas Day 1066. Edward the Confessor had rebuilt the building in late Anglo-Saxon style, completed not long before his funeral on January the 6th, 1066. Earl Harold Godwinson was proclaimed king and crowned then and there. The ceremonies must have been done in a hurry and therefore sparsely decorated. William's coronation would have been more heraldry on the show. We have a good example of his ruthlessness in the the entree of Suffolk. A freeholder named Bream from Dagworth near Stowmarket, was killed fighting for the King Harold at the Battle of Hastings. Bream's family lost 150 acres of arable land to Norman invader Hugh de Montfort. Dagworth is a scattering of farms, cottages and other homes on single-track lanes between the parishes of Old Newton and Hawley. There is a water splash at Dagworth Quiet now, but once busy place. It shares with Rattleston the ancient distinction of being a navigable head of the river system that becomes the Gipping, emptying into the Orwell at Ipswich and Harwich Harbour at Felixstowe. Hops loaded into shallow draught craft at the ford, long known as Dagger's Dock, and used to make ale at breweries downstream. According to some historians, Hops were first introduced into England at Dagworth. They can be found growing wild in woods, hedgerows and gardens around the hamlet. And a letter from Dave Payne in Harwich is headlined Talking at Cross Purposes. It was only a few weeks ago when Suffolk Coastal MP Therese Coffey said, If you want to earn more, work more hours. L. Truss must have read it wrong and thought it said, Work less, talk rubbish. Get the gullible to pay to listen, and then tell everybody, it was not me that got the country in a mess, Gov. The others made me do it. And this letter is from Jerome Walls via email. Gradual erosion of our rights. The current government is slowly eroding our rights as citizens before our eyes. Last week, the Public Order Act was sneaked into a law ahead of schedule and used to arrest a perfectly legal anti-monarchist protest leader with no real evidence that any crime was being enacted. This law allows police to basically arrest people with no evidence, just suspicion. Braverman and her cronies would have us believe that these are necessary to maintain British values, when they are the complete opposite. It's time to realise that long-cherished freedoms are being removed before our very eyes and we'll be sorry when they're gone. The right to protest should be sacrosanct unless you don't really believe in democracy. And Tony Pringle's letter via email starts Polling station not accessible for wheelchairs. There was plenty of propaganda regarding photo identification for voting at the local elections. But how about those in charge of these things realises, realising that wheelchairs do not do steps? Time was, it was easy. The polling station I used was Foley House, quite accessible. Then, for some reason, the polling station was moved to the racing centre, not by the front door, which is easily accessible, but the room at the back with a large step. I think once before I got round this by going in the front door and navigating my way to the correct room. Evidently such mundane matters are immaterial and the back room and step are still in use. This time I sat outside while the paperwork was brought out to me. I wonder how many other disabled folk had to be treated in a similar manner. I may be old, I may be disabled, but I refuse to be a second-class citizen. And now we're going to do some features. Uh, This is about a book written by Roger Pugh 
entitled The Most Secret Place on Earth. This turned out to be nearer to home than we thought, as Roger told the story of the world's first tanks, developed during the First World War and tested and trained at Elvedon, Suffolk. 25 square miles of Lord Ivar's estate were transformed into a replica Western Front battlefield for this revolutionary new weapon in what was then the most important military installation in the world. Roger gives an insight into these machines and the conditions endured by the young men who operated them in his book. I'd just like to add, personally, I've heard that the term tanks... Uh, was coined when, because it was a secret installation in uh, Elvedon, uh, so that the locals weren't suspicious, they were told that it was to do with the water board and they were testing tanks, hence the name tanks. Whether that's true or not, I'm afraid I don't know, and it's not mentioned in this quote about the book. And here we have... Myths and Legends of Suffolk, the Bure's Dragon. First recorded in 1405 by a local monk, the story of the Bure's Dragon has been recounted many more times over the years. Taking place in Bure's, the village where St Edmund was crowned King of England in 855, several townsfolk recall being terrified by a huge beast with a crested head, serrated teeth and long tail. It terrorised the village, breathing fire and killing a shepherd and his flock. The men of the fiefdom tried to kill the dragon with arrows, but failed to injure him. So men from across the country were summoned to slay the dragon, which fled down river towards the adjacent village of Wormingford and disappeared into the marshes, never to be seen again. One account of the tale recalls the bowmen of Bures celebrating by heading to the pub for a meal of dragon-roasted sheep. While the villagers of Bures may have been mistaken, thinking the, thinking the scaly creature was a dragon, it is thought that the scaly creature may in fact be a crocodile that was given to King Richard I as a gift from King Saladin during the 12th century Crusades. The reptile would have been kept at the Tower of London, in the Royal Menagerie, but it is believed to have escaped and ended up in the marshes near Bures. The tale can be evidenced across Suffolk today, with several old churches in the area featuring depictions of dragons on their wall, including a 15th century painting of the storied creature in the Whissington Church, a few miles from Bures. As part of the Queen's Golden Jubilee celebrations in 2012, the legendary dragon was also etched onto a hill in the village, and whilst it is located on private land, it can be seen from a distance. And uh, my next feature is about the London Underground. Now, I have to say that I'm not quite sure about the dates here, they're a bit confusing to me, but I'll read uh, the text anyway. By 1880, the streets of London were becoming so congested that in 1855 it was recommended that the main train stations be linked by an underground railway. The first underground route was from Paddington to Farringdon via King's Cross. Work commenced in 1859 and the line finally opened on the 10th of January 1863. The highest underground station is Amersham in Buckinghamshire, at 147 metres above sea level, 12 metres higher than the London Eye. The deepest station is Hampstead on the northern line at 58.5 metres. This station has the deepest lift shaft at 55 metres and has 326 steps. London's underground was the first to be opened in 1863, followed by Istanbul in 1875, Chicago in 1892, and Budapest in 1896, Glasgow in 1897, and finally Toronto in 1954. And now we have some words about the legend of Maud Carew. Margareta Green's novel, The Secret Disclosed, is a local legend in the town, telling the tale of Maud Carew, 
a nun in medieval Bury St Edmunds, whose unrequited love for a monk of the Abbey of St Edmund led her to murder Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. The ghost story sparked riots on the streets of Bury St Edmunds upon its release in 1860. Fictional and released on a limited run, Green's family was thought to be the only intended readers, but as word of mouth spread, a large crowd gathered at the Great Churchyard in February 1862, expecting to see the ghost of Maud Carew, an event predicted in the book. The secret disclosed was Green's only published work, but remains a legend in Bury St Edmunds, with gatherings held at the Great Churchyard in February to this day. Green lived all her life in a house next to St Edmundsbury Cathedral, and is a member of the family which founded the Green King Brewery. And not to be outdone by Christian, I too have uh, myths and legends of Bury St Edmunds, and I hope there's no arachnophobes listening. The Spider Invasion of Bury St Edmunds The story of the spider invasion of Bury St Edmunds first appeared in the Mirabilis Annus Secundus in 1662 and was part of a list of strange signs and apparitions, meant to be warnings from God, which it was said were appearing as a warning to everyone to obey the word of God. It is said that a swarm of spiders formed a parade making their way to the home of Sir John Duncombe, a member of the late Parliament who had once been Chancellor of the Exchequer and later been knighted. As the people passed the street or came near the spiders to look upon so strange a sight, they would shun the people and kept themselves together in a body till they came to the said Duncombe's house, before whose door there are two great posts. There they stole, and many of them got under the door to the house. But the greatest part of them, climbing up the posts, spun a very great web presently from one post to the other, and then wrapped themselves in the two very great parcels that hung down nearly to the ground. Upon finding two huge spider webs filled with red marching spiders outside their master's home, Sir Duncombe's servants destroyed the webs by setting them on fire, killing thousands of spiders outside the country home. I've got some more letters. Okay, we've got... Where are we doing? Sorry, we've run out. Okay. So... Uh, some more letters too. This letter from jo- Roger Spiller, Ixworth. Out-of-touch Tories in a pothole. Peter Critchley, letters April the 28th, made some pertinent comments on the failure of national and local government under the Tories to provide the services they ought and we need. As if to emphasise how much, how out of touch the Conservative Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is, just look at his answer to a question about Conservative failures during PMQs on May the 3rd. His response... There are fewer potholes under the Tories. Clearly, his planet is smoother than ours. Arthur Pooley from Blytheborough writes, I was intrigued to see in the ADT mention of a sign featuring an expletive. Might this be a reference to a word shown in the Oxford English Dictionary as deriving from the Old English with early recorded uses in 1508 and 1585? Might the MP be part of a government which claimed to free us from the European red tape, such as Council Directive 91-271-EEC, aiming to protect our water environment from the adverse effects of urban wastewater and certain industrial discharges? The fact that the MP affects a high-vis jacket, doubtless inspired by a late, unlamented PM, can only encourage onlookers to consider her department's wastewater record to be excremental. Well, we're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk, so if you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. 
We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Bury Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week, so until then, from Roger, Christian and myself, Graham, it's goodbye. Podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St. Edmunds studio.